0: Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts, where we get together uh, every week or so to let you listen in on conversations that I have with thinkers and leaders. Uh, Be sure to check out the other uh, brand new podcast that includes lots of different things, uh, teaching through Genesis chapter by chapter, answering your questions about moral dilemmas, and of course, The Cross and the Jukebox, where we look at music through the prism of the gospel. That's at the Russell Moore Podcast. But here on Signposts, we look for those pointers toward grace that uh, Walker Percy used to call signposts in a strange land. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time because I respect uh, this journalist greatly. Uh, John Dickerson is a correspondent for 60 Minutes and a CBS News senior political analyst, and he has published his most recent book called The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency, which is a fascinating volume we're going to get to talk about today. Uh, He was previously co-anchor of CBS This Morning and the moderator of Face the Nation, as well as CBS News' chief Washington correspondent. And he's now a contributing writer to The Atlantic, as well as the host of the Whistle Stop uh, podcast. And I I, uh, have have always enjoyed uh, working with John Dickerson as a journalist. But even before I ever met him, I was listening to him every week on something called the Slate Political Gab Fest. And uh, first of all, John, welcome welcome to Signpost. Thanks for being here.
1: Russell, thank you so much. It's a delight to be with you.
0: With the Slate Political Gab Fest, I have to tell you, I'm back to listening to it. I took a little bit of a hiatus <laughs> because uh, from <laughs> 2017 onward, it just seemed that politics was everywhere uh, all the time. And I, I found myself drifting away but I would come back every year for the conundrums episode that, that you all would do about uh, you know, sorting through moral dilemmas and whatever. Uh, but I found myself back, and it's almost like uh, it's almost like being back with a, a program, a set of characters that you feel you know. And so I, I enjoy that every week.
1: Well, I'm very glad you're back. It, a set of characters is probably a good description for the three of us. Uh, we just celebrated <laughs> our our 15th anniversary. Uh, we started it 15 years ago. Um and I think, uh, you know, the p- political scene has been, well, it's just been particular for the last four years. And I think that things are going to change a great deal. And hopefully our the nature of our conversations will be a little broader uh, because it's been one of the things that's been a challenge in our whole political conversation is the way in which the kind of frantic mess of the moment limits our, our, um, our worldview a little bit. So I'm excited for what the future holds for our next 15 years.
0: Is it a challenge uh, with not only a podcast with 60 Minutes, uh, with all of these other things that have to be recorded uh, ahead of time, obviously, if only by a few hours, how fast things seem to develop now? I'll notice that I listen to uh, a podcast that has to do with current events that maybe I'm three days out from, and by the time I listen to it, I think there is so much that has happened that that seems to be six weeks ago.
1: It's, it's, it's quite true. Uh, and you know, that's a double challenge. It's the one, one of the challenges you just have to be current. We find certainly on the, on the Gab Fest that, uh, we record on Thursday, and it feels like there's always news happening on Friday. Um, and you know, I should mention Russell while we're talking about the Gabfest. One of the thing, many things I admire about you is I certainly know that, that some of the politics of the members on the Gabfest uh, and are not yours. And and your um, intellectual curiosity and your uh, ability to take on the viewpoints of people who uh, are just all over the map is such a wonderful thing, and it's something we try to promote, we fail in doing, um, but you're a great model for that. And we could use a lot more of that in our public conversation. So the fact that you listen to us at all is a, uh, is a wonderful thing. And and back on your original question, 60 Minutes, one of the wonderful things about working there is that it takes a longer view. And so I'm working on a story, several stories, um, you know, that may not run for another year. Um, Another one that I won't, I'm working on now. We won't start shooting until March. So I'm I'm in, in all kinds of funny timelines of the moment, and then not until 2022.
0: That's interesting. We, you know, a lot of our listeners are Christian. Not all of them are. Uh, some are are sort of uh, figuring out their way uh, when it comes to spiritual and religious issues. But most uh, most listeners of Signpost are are uh, Christians of some sort or the other. Uh, before we get to your book, what was sort of your spiritual background growing up?
1: I was raised a Catholic. My mother was a Catholic of the kind uh, that many of your listeners may be familiar with. From She's from Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. Her mother went to mass every morning. My mother didn't go to mass every morning, but she certainly would have gone every Sunday. And then she went to Clark College in Dubuque, Iowa, uh, and was educated for two years by the nuns. Uh, in a very um, traditional and uh, observant Catholic school in Dubuque. And so she had a a strong Catholic faith her whole life. I was raised as a Catholic. My father was a Baptist who converted to Catholicism when he got married. And then my parents split when I was um, 13. And I went and ended up living with my father. And I basically started to go to church, sometimes with him, sometimes just by myself. The church I went to was actually near where we were living and then I have sort of become. Um, I mean, I'm still I'm, I'm still a Catholic, but it has been my faith journey is is self taught with a, uh, some dear friends who are priests, but um, also uh, lots of other Christian readings and trying to to read and think um, as broadly as I can over the various you know over say the last 20 years or so um in Jesus's life and his teachings um and so i don't i don't know what i what i i mean i'm certainly a catholic for sure but i but um i'm there's a lot of um uh, of my faith that i when i read in the mornings that that is not necessarily catholic uh versions of of teaching but but tries to be as broad as possible
0: am i accurate in the way i see this it seems I think a lot of people around the country assume that Washington, D.C., especially in government and media, is just thoroughly uh, secularized with no uh, sort of religious or spiritual component. I remember being an intern in in Congress as a 19-year-old and being really the only religious person that I knew around. Now in Washington, that's completely changed uh, of all all various uh, sorts. But quite a bit more religious commitment than i think people might assume
1: i think that's right and i think that um it's interesting because different faiths of course have different and have come to different understandings about how to talk about and practice and witness Um, and you know some of the greatest christian witness i've seen is from people uh who you might not have otherwise thought were spiritual or uh believers in christ so You know, I think in my mother's generation, well, in my mother's generation, it became very hip to be a a Roman Catholic because, of course, John Kennedy was president. And so if you had been part of this maligned religion, um, you know, it's suddenly your day in the sun. So there were a lot of people who were coming out of the woodwork as Catholics in order. But I think you're I think you're right. And I think the evangelical tradition, which is more public in in talking about faith and living your faith, I think is Different than, say, some of the Episcopalians I know or Presbyterians who are who are um, a little more reserved about it. So I think that's part of the contribution as well um, is 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 how that has changed over time and people's just comfort in talking about their faith.
0: Well, your most recent book, The Hardest Job in the World, is a fascinating read about the broad picture of the presidency and what it takes to be president and and how the presidency affects so many other uh, aspects of, of life and leadership. And one of the interesting things, if someone's not familiar with this book, the first thing that one sees is this uh, startling, iconic uh, image on the cover of Lyndon Johnson, uh, really bent over the table with his head in his hands with all the pressures of Vietnam going on uh, around. John, you talk a a lot about sort of the pressure valve uh, of the presidency, and I think that's one thing that most people notice. They they notice how much older a president looks by the time he leaves office uh, as, as opposed to when he came into office and it seems to me that there's some of the things that you talk about in this book that actually are not just valuable for evaluating presidents, but also for everyone, because it, it seems to—I was just reading uh, Barack Obama's new memoir, and at several points he talked about the press and his frustrations with the press. Of course, President Trump does so in more in sharper ways than, than that. But it seems to me that everybody right now has to deal with that, if only— dealing with the Yelp reviews uh, for the, the convenience store, which one, one works. I mean, we're all in that sort of uh, situation to some degree or the other. What did you learn in working through this project about presidents, about that sort of um, need to deal with public perception as opposed to to a moral compass and how not to collapse under all that?
1: It came to me working on this book. It's basically been the product of my adult life covering the presidency. And there was a period, I'd say about six or seven years ago, where I really started to think through what the job does to the brain of the person who has it, psychologically what it's like to go through it. And I've sort of started collecting and looking at the presidency that way. I mean, from the the, the peculiarities of the job, for example, when you walk through the West Wing, parts of it, the, the private offices... As a president, your picture is everywhere. You are confronted constantly with pictures of yourself. No one, as, as Barack Obama mentions in his book, calls you by your first name anymore. Those are tiny little drops, but you are pelted constantly throughout the day with little drops of, of the unreality of the world in which you live. And then you've got decisions to make that um, you know are life and death decisions for, for our military um, you have to make decisions, political decisions that um, that can hurt some of your allies and friends. Um, you have to take risks that might make you, make you look foolish. Um, and I just started to think through you have very little outlet in terms of who you can talk about with these things, um, who, who you can bounce ideas off of, who has any idea of what you've been through. And so I started to kind of think through what that does to the brain of a president and what coping mechanisms are required and whether those coping mechanisms are are very healthy. Um, Barack Obama used to talk about how he kind of created a character called Barack Obama who other people would talk about and who, uh, you know, get all of the criticism that was a distinct entity from himself in order to basically preserve some space for his own sense and his own identity and he when i interviewed him before the book but one of the things that he said when i was you know i've been on this kick for a long time if you could interview somebody for the job of the president what would you look for and one of the things he said was that moral compass that what do you turn to when you are alone and you are at your wits end and how did you build that and how sustaining is it through your life and and as you pointed out that's you know that's an important question whether you're president uh of the United States or, uh, you know, um, uh, or you run a hardware store. So that is a fundamental aspect of the job and one you better have when you go in because it takes a beating in the job.
0: I was really glad in reading your book that you gave a a good bit of attention to a president that that many people sort of overlook and think of as bland and boring. And I think it's it's the reverse of the truth. And that's President Eisenhower. And uh, you have uh, at the beginning of one of the chapters a quote from Eisenhower saying, anger cannot win, it cannot even think clearly. And uh, I had never heard that quote from Eisenhower, but as soon as I read it, I thought, uh, that's exactly right. And it explains so much about American culture uh, right now, really across the board of this sense of theatrical anger. Do, Do you think that Eisenhower was sort of a model of someone who figured out how to subdue his own id in order to in order to lead.
1: It's a great point. And I kind of fell in with President Eisenhower because every time I would look at the component parts of the presidency and how the best to think about it, I kept coming across Eisenhower. And it, at, at, at some point I thought, I can't turn this into an entire book about Eisenhower. But what intrigued me, and this is exactly along the lines of what you're talking about, is that He thought a great deal about how to be a leader, how to be a leader in different venues, how to be leader as president, how to be leader as a general, how to be leader as a college president. And it was in the context of thinking about those different kinds of leaderships that he, that he thought about his own personal behavior. So he had a terrible temper. They called him in the White House the terrible Mr. Bang because he would erupt. And he took care of that in two interesting ways. One, he told his staff, look, I'm going to explode from time to time. And this is just a part of my nature and recognize it for what it is, which is my you know particular way of doing things. And recognize that, and then, you know, we'll we'll kind of handle it, it will pass, and then we'll be able to go forward. And that's quite important as a leader to kind of let everybody know what your weak spots are, because it shows a certain temperament, but it also helps your staff know exactly how to take the right signals from you. But he also mastered and sought to master his own impulses. And I don't know whether that came from his very religious upbringing uh, I was interested to find out that he was, the, I think, the only president to be baptized in office, which is fascinating, um, his relationship with Billy Graham. and But um, he ma- he sought to master two things. One, his temper, and the other was his smoking. And the temper, what he would do sometimes when he became angry with somebody is he would write their name on a piece of paper and drop it into a drawer. And in do- so doing, he banished his anger for that person. Now, I don't know if that worked. He claimed it worked. But he always sought to keep his impulses in check, which is not only a good human thing to do, but is crucial in a presidency because when you act impulsively, of course, you're not doing it just for your own self. You've got a whole country hooked up to your impulses. And uh, that, as we've seen, and, and is quite dangerous.
0: I was interested that you mentioned, I had never thought about this before, how Ike and JFK didn't go to the site of some major natural disasters that happened in their presidency. And that was not even marked uh, upon uh, by, by people at the time. We live now, of course, at a time where when we think of most of the recent presidents, we do think of them in terms of uh, their response, compassionate response to great tragedies. Uh, Reagan with Challenger explosion, uh, Bill Clinton with Oklahoma City, uh, George W. Bush with and Katrina, uh, and so on. Uh, And I I don't think that many people think of Richard Nixon as compassionate, but uh, as as someone who grew up on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, Nixon was revered because he came to the coast after a terrible hurricane, Hurricane Camille, and said, you'll be back, and when you do, I'll, I'll come back and be here as well, which he did, the only public event that he did after his resignation for a long time. And there was a sense of loyalty to him to the degree that that congressional district stayed with him all through Watergate, uh, even, even the, the darkest times there. When you think about these, these aspects of compassion and public compassion— How important is that to the country to have a president who knows how to rally everyone together in a time of of peril?
1: I think it's crucial, although there is a cost. And I think I was really interested, here I am going back to Eisenhower, the reason he said that it was important not to have everybody look to the federal government to take care in the wake of these disasters, and there was a distinction between taking care of the buildings that fell down and then taking care of the the people who had been displaced, is he said basically it gets in the way of our own cheerful giving, our own sense of volunteerism, our own sense of community and it's an interesting conversation to have about whether if the federal government is always taking care of things then people's fellow feeling and their community feeling um atrophies when they know somebody else is taking care of it now i don't know whether i would sign up necessarily to that idea but it's a very interesting one and nevertheless the norm has changed in the presidency and for the political reasons that you mentioned lyndon johnson and then nixon they president started to learn that when you played this role as either first responder or consoler-in-chief that you not only helped people in their moment of need, but you also found out that, that it helped you politically. I think in the current moment, we have two things. One is a generalized need for this kind of pastoral role Um, because I, because we become a more secular country in some ways, people look for comfort and seek comfort in the presidency. And then I think secondarily, more recently, as we've become an even more divided nation, the ability to speak to the whole nation, to, to bind us together by something I think is vital and crucial and is a question of the moment because we cannot have a country that is split constantly. And the person who is a leader of whatever, wherever they come from, whether it's the presidency or anywhere else, who can help bind the nation together will make it healthier, I think. But also, again, there's a there's a tactical reason to do this, which is when you're trying to send a message to the whole country, let's say about the benefits of wearing a mask or doing whatever is necessary to handle a nationwide challenge. You need to be able to have some inroads to the whole country, not just your political base. And those inroads are often made by either being able to speak in the tone of, of somebody who act, who plays that consoler role or someone who has played it and therefore has at least one channel open to a portion of the country that may not necessarily be in their political base.
0: I just uh, did a project uh, this past week with Francis Collins, head of the National Institutes of Health, about vaccines and, and dealing with so much of the disinformation and misinformation about vaccines that are out there. But the danger is, of course, that when it comes to the COVID vaccine, like masks, like everything else, that it becomes a red-blue culture war division where half the country just reacts to the other half uh, out, of, out of some sort of instinct. When you think about uh, President-elect Biden, when he comes into office, is he going to have a completely unmanageable uh, situation because of the levels of partisanship fueled by social media that we have now?
1: Well, I think he's going to face an enormous challenge and you, you, he's facing it already in the, in, the, in the millions of people who have signed up to President Trump's um, uh, false story about what happened with the election. So he's got President-elect Biden's already got that to manage. I, it is one of the, if not the, it's one of the great challenges of his presidency is, is is a how to repair this this is a this is a, a national challenge this is a this is as big as well name any other big challenge that is whether it's income inequality or um, or the economy or covid i mean this is a huge challenge that any president would have to take on which is our natu- the, the split in our nation and what that does to trying to solve public questions because if you can't even begin on begin to to agree on the basic principles of of debate then, then you're really going to get nowhere. I think the route to your uh, question, is it possible? I think you have to find where those common links are. I think you could imagine him, and, and he won in part because he was able to find some links in working class America that Democrats had, had lost touch with. I think as a man of faith, he has the possibility to, to make connections there. And I think it's something he could work on by trying to go around political leaders and trying to find – there is a huge chunk of America that isn't habitually on social media to grind at each other on politics. And, and, and a leader who can touch that portion of America – and I'm not sure how you do it but, – but can perhaps go around and, and, you know, various politicians use the phrase, we're better than our politics – basically try to access that, the idea that we are better actually in our hearts than 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 the way we behave or the way sometimes uh, the people who run our politics um, behave.
0: The contrast between Biden and Trump is obvious, whatever someone thinks about either of them. But uh, you've worked so long both in this book and also on Whistle Stop and other places with all of these uh, presidents We don't we can't see into the future. Obviously, we're not psychics. But if you had to guess, just knowing what we know about the last 50 years of of Biden, which of the presidents do you think he will be most like that that we're that we're familiar with in terms of leadership and and trying to get things done?
1: I think it's George Herbert Walker Bush. I think um it, and, and I'm captive of that reasoning because Biden has um, George Herbert Walker Bush's experience in, the, in Washington and in various, um, you know, Bush was more varied in his Washington experience, but he believed uh, he had a certain set of ideological beliefs, but his, he was really a pragmatic um, uh, person who believed in the system, who believed that good people could get into a room and, and argue out their differences Um, and, and he was not a radical leaving the political rhetoric aside, Joe Biden, you saw in his campaign, him exercise restraint, even with his own, within his own party, um, where he didn't go all the way to the left. And there was a competition to kind of go off the map to the left in the primaries. He didn't do that. And he didn't do that when he was really in a bad position about to be, you know, left for dead. He nevertheless never succumbed to that. And then as a general election candidate, he didn't take the bait often when when President Trump tried to uh, go after him. If that capacity for restraint holds in the office, then he will then again have one of those attributes that George Herbert Walker Bush had. And um, I don't, will that be effective? I have no idea. But that's the way in which I've been thinking about him and and his staff picks with, you know, Brent Scrocroft's deep understanding of the kind of American foreign policy When you look at the Biden team, these are all people who come at it from the left, of course, but who recognize and represent the kind of consensus set of views that have been a part of American government uh, in the previous era.
0: You mentioned earlier about secularization and an increasingly secular uh, American populace. And, of course, we can see that with all of the exit polling and and every sort of polling in in American life, the rise of the nuns, not, not the nuns your mom studied with, but the NONES nuns. Uh, how do you think that's going to affect uh, American civic life, th- this increased secularization and, and lack of religious affiliation in the years to come?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, and, I, and I get nervous about sounding preachy, uh, but, but I think that one of the challenges we are having at the moment is what is the power of an idea to make you overcome your own self-interest? Um, what is your ability to think more in the long term than in the short term? What is your connection and your obligation to your fellow man? What are the driving uh, um, uh, propulsive forces in your life? Is it self-interest or is it a larger interest? Well, essentially, religion trains us to answer all of those questions in a way that helps for the public good, to use a a secular term, the religious term or the religious way to think about it would simply be loving thy neighbor. And if loving thy neighbor is your governing and propulsive force in your life, then you let a lot of things slide. You come from a place of love, not from a place of questioning motives. Now, that's useful in life, but it's also quite useful in government. We have a system now where, um, you know, and I don't know whether it's a result of secularization. It must be. But it's it could also be the fact that we have social media and a kind of quick, instantaneous culture in which thinking the worst of people um, gets you a lot of benefits and advantages and you can make a career out of it. Um, And and you can and you can you receive a claim. And in our private lives, we know the power of of love and generosity and charity and grace. And yet in public life, you know, there are not a lot of big moments where there's breaking news. Somebody behaved uh, with extraordinary grace in our political life. And imagine if there were um, and, and you know, we would all hope there would be. So I don't know if that incentive structure is just the, the, the wickedness of politics or whether it results from a greater secularization. They're surely tied. I just don't know what the exact causal nature is um, to be able to be definitive about it.
0: I was talking to a group of um, high schoolers one time who said, don't you think that Washington's so so phony and, and lacking in authenticity? It's, it's all of this, my good friend and, and so forth when they really hate each other. And I said, actually, I think the inauthenticity goes the other direction. A lot of these people actually do like each other and, and get along, but have to theatrically hate each other for their basis. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I certainly <laughs> see that all the time. <laughs> my favorite, uh, uh, one of my favorite parts of this book, uh, and I, I've kept you too long, I knew already that I said I would. But my favorite part of this book as a longtime DC Comics fan was the term Green Lanternism uh, that a, a president or any other leader can't just have a, a magic trick out of sheer willpower uh, to be able to, to succeed. And I think we certainly can, can look at that, even the examples that you give in the book. But also probably uh, is the reason why so many people get disappointed w- with their uh, anointed candidates across the board when things don't just turn into <laughs> the exact situation they imagined.
1: That's right I, I used to call it the, the superhero presidency and Brendan Nyhan, as a political scientist used the green Lanternism um, a, as a as his way of describing the, the similar thing and it's essentially what I love about Green Lanternism, which is better than just the the, the, the generic notion of a superhero is, is Green Lantern's power derived from the force of his will And so oftentimes presidents and politicians in general are seen as, as failing simply as a result of their lack of will. And if they just were more earnestly engaged in their job, uh, then then the world will magically uh, align with, uh, you know, in perfect harmony or, you know, things will get done. And that's not the case. I mean, they can very much want something to happen and there's a system that works against them. And recognizing that, as you pointed out, is is one of the ways in which, I mean, there's tension, of course, we want very high standards because high standards cause people to exceed themselves. But also you don't want such standards that are unrealistic that everybody's always disappointed. And my concern with the, with the book and in a lot of my thinking and, and in this moment where we are now with history is what are the proper standards and what are the expectations we should have so that we keep the pressure on, you know, and keep people accountable, but also don't set them in such a ridiculous fashion that we lose sight of the reality of how hard the job is and if we are real about how hard the job is, it's not to let people off the hook, but it's perhaps to evaluate them more thoroughly, to think through whether they have a moral compass or whether they have character, and to think through whether the kinds of people they're hiring are, are able to do the jobs they're being hired for or whether they're being hired simply to put a good public relations face forward. And so Green Lanternism is, is definitely at the root of a lot of our misaligned expectations.
0: The book is The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency by John Dickerson. John, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today on Signpost.
1: Thank you, Russell. It's, it was a great pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Signposts this week. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, or wherever you listen. And check out the new Russell Moore podcast there as well. Leave a review if you're so moved. It helps people to find uh, the podcast. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art and you'll find show notes, resources, and how you can get a copy of John Dickerson's book, The Hardest Job in the World. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signpost.